Hi everybody, I'm Ray Otis. It's May 1st, 2019, and this is episode 65 of Plundergrounds. We'll be talking about urban druids, get involved in a roleplay rescue, relive the glory days of small-scale miniatures games, and talk about RPGs versus literature. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hey Ray, this is James Shields of a Grazing Mace. Your talk of uh, city dreaming and uh, other stuff surrounding that made me think about druids. You know, druids normally um, are protectors of, of nature and, and natural things, but in a fantasy world, a city could be a living thing. So what about urban druids? Urban druids in a fantasy setting. How would you do that? How would you do that in dungeon world? What would be some cool uh, things you'd, you'd apply to them? All right, appreciate the podcasts, uh, man. Keep it up. Talk to you later. James Shields. It's good to hear from you, man. You just kind of blew my mind. Urban druids. Sh- man, what does that mean even? That's <laughs> so cool to think about. Does it mean that the cities in your world are grown rather than constructed? So are they these kind of weird buildings made out of organic tech? Is it is it an elven world where every city is just um, trees trained to grow in, in shapes that uh, perform domiciles? Or is it some sort of uh, quasi-scientific universe where you have an atomistic creature, a, a nano, if you will, that that is uh that builds structures for people i don't know that's cool if so that means you know the buildings are alive and then druids play an important role there um what does it mean to be a druid in that you know if shape-shifting is part of the druid idea can you do you shape-shift into inanimate things do you you know lamp posts and fountains and stuff as opposed to animals that's weird um, do you have spells, uh, that are, you know, that, that are urban spells that, you know, like, um, I don't know what the, the uh, instead of entanglement, do you have something that bricks someone up in, in an, enclo- you know, in a, in an alley? Uh, do you have, uh, something that cracks the pavement under them? Do you have a way of magically making doors connect in ways that, you know, so you open a door in one building, walk through it, and you're in a building on the other side of the city to kind of door walk, as it were, as opposed to forest walk? Man, great ideas there. There's just lots of different cool things you could do with an urban wizard, isn't there? Um, I think it would suffer a little bit from the same problem that druids suffer from, which is they, you know, classic druids are better in the wild. Uh, perhaps than they are in cities, but there's always that crossover. Like there's always this idea of the druid bringing the wild into the city, like you know, uh, calling a bunch of rats forth or eroding a building with natural forces like water and stuff. So maybe the opposite's true. Maybe an urban wizard 
goes out into the wilderness and brings civilization with him and organize maybe not leg, leg, maybe not strictly civilization like probably doesn't cast spells that creates buildings in the middle of a forest but might cast a spell that makes the nature organize itself in a civilized way you know to make uh, to turn a field of wildflowers into uh, an English manor garden with perfectly, uh, you know, manicured hedges and topiaries uh, to force a tree to grow into uh, a symmetrical shape or a, a useful shape. That's, wow, there's some interesting stuff. Divert courses of rivers, um, you know, just, wow, to enlist animals to build for you. Just lots of cool ideas. So thanks for calling that in. <laughs> um, I love to I love to get my brain spiraling out in these directions where you think of a of a traditional thing in a new way, and you really did that for me. So thanks, James. Cool call in. Oh, it just occurred to me, James, that you asked me how I would do it in Dungeon World. That's going to take a little bit of thinking. Um, I think it'd be fairly easy to do, probably far easier to do in something like Dungeon World than it would be to build an urban wizard for D&D. Although, if I were doing it in more classic D&D, I would just reflavor all the spells, right? So instead of Entangle, I would say, um, what's what's the equivalent of <laughs> in brick something uh, to uh, seal off or something like that? Um, or crack the earth, you know, crack the pavement, or, you know, I'd, I'd make different uh, versions of the spells that are urban flavored. Uh, but you know, I think changing the class, I don't know, it'd be a little trickier. I think it'd be a little trickier to get that flavor, right? Whereas in dungeon world, since everything is kind of a narrative move, it all follows that pattern of roll 2d6, add your, in this case, your wisdom bonus. Uh, and you know, it, it just breaks down into six minus something bad happens to you. Um, seven to nine, you get done what you wanted to get done, but there's a drawback or limitation to it. And 10 plus, you get what you want. You know, it's you've done it. Uh, it makes it easier to kind of develop flavorful ideas there. Uh, so every idea I can think of, give me an example. Uh, the one I mentioned earlier of organizing the wilderness. So, you know, the trigger for that would be when you attempt to impose order on the wild, roll plus wisdom. And then the outcomes would be, um, you know, uh, with a six or less, if you define that one, it would be nature rebels and gets even wilder, right? So it, it presses in all around you or, or it pushes back and maybe uh, some cataclysmic or, or force of nature comes at you that, that's scary and damaging. On a seven to nine, um, it grudgingly moves into place in a limited scale. Um, and probably doesn't last. So as you as you move out of that zone, it probably reverts back to the wild. And on a 10 plus, you have taught it uh, to, to grow in new patterns and it now might even infect other parts of the woods. Like it might expand out from there, uh, this manicured straight line version of wilderness. Yeah, so it, it's pretty cool. Um, if I'm going to probably think about this a lot more. So if it turns into anything, I'll release it through my Patreon as a free for everybody, a little, maybe a playbook or something. But yeah, super cool. I love it. Before we get to the topic of RPGs versus literature, I wanted to address a couple other call-ins, and it sounds like both of them are from across the pond. Ray, Ray, Ray. 
Um, Zeno Dead Zone. Um, confession time. I've not played an RPG since the 80s. And I've never run a game. Um, for the cu past couple of years, I've been lurking around in the shadows of the hobby like some OSR golem. Um, my current situation means that the chances of playing are slim to none until now. You see, I've got a wife who loves Pandemic and she's also a sucker for a xenomorph. Um, I'm still collating, but I think I see a way out of this. So thanks for bringing this to my attention. Uh, this could be a game changer. This is free for all. Signing off. Thanks for calling in, Free For All. Man, I'm excited for you. Uh, I'm glad that you get a chance to get something RPG-like to the table and spend quality time with your wife. I mean, win-win. You'll have to let us know how it went with some kind of after-action report. Uh, if it went well, we'll be, I'll be excited, and if it went poorly, we can all commiserate. But I am excited for you, and I hope it works out. I do think your wife will like it. It definitely has that pandemic sort of feel to it. And it's super challenging to hit the objectives. I feel like uh, maybe unlike Pandemic, there's a bit more of a middle win. In other words, you can achieve some of the objectives and get out and feel decent about that, even if you don't achieve all of the objectives. Whereas in Pandemic, you either basically save the world or you don't. <laughs> but yeah, very cool. I hope she likes it. So I'm picking up my Necromunda books from Arfeds this evening. Got game on tonight, Ray. Um, I'm putting that one down to you, man. And uh, also um, dug out some figures. Got my rat skins. They were a, a, a watershed for me in painting miniatures. I'll have to post some images up at some point. And skirmish games, superb. I've had some great fun with with all those Games Workshop ones. And recently, I've picked up a lot of the Osprey publications, stuff like uh, Dragon Rampant and Lion Rampant. There's the um, Gaslands. Uh, there's there's loads of them in the series, and I can thoroughly recommend them to anybody that's not familiar. They're a, a small, they're thin books. They're an easy read, nicely written, lavishly illustrated, very economical Osprey Publications, the Skirmish Games. Nice. The Rat Skins were cool. I remember them being a gang that was added after the core book, but I love the idea of them running around in the skins of these giant mutant rats and being more of a feral, scoutish kind of uh, group. I never got the miniatures, but yeah, cool. I hope they uh, do well in the Underhive and, and you level up a few guys. I um, also wanted to say thanks for the recommendation on the Osprey games. I have picked up Gaslands, but haven't read it yet. I really enjoy racing fighting games. I always have. I, I love Circus Maximus. I haven't played it in years, but I, I thought that was a great game. I had Circus Imperium, which was great. It was a uh, grav sled science fiction slash Roman uh, you know, game with chariots pulled by mutant lions and you know uh, a, a throwing of uh, I can't remember if it had like laser rifles and stuff in it but it feels like it should have I even made uh, an 8 foot track for that at one point with my own custom miniatures and ran it at, at Gen Con I think I have pictures somewhere of that 
that was a good fun. And uh, there's been a couple of games that have come out over the years. I think there's one called Arenas, Arena Maximus that was put out by Fantasy Flight Games where you generated the sections of track as you went. And there could be there was some cool stuff that could happen. Um, and those are all chariot racing. Uh, Ave Caesar is a pretty good chariot racing game. A little lighter and a little more true to the original... Uh, to the original uh, idea of just Roman chariot races. But there's other good race games. Uh, Car Wars is, of course, the the one that started it all with, uh, you know, battling cars. But I never was a huge fan of the Car Wars rules. I did like, I think it was Wreckage, and I think that was another Fantasy Flight game that used matchbox-scale cars and counters on a tabletop. And it was very freeform, but you had little templates for turning and, and uh, moving. There was another one that was a miniatures line called Crash with a K, so K-R-A-S-H, and it was made by, I think, a company in the Netherlands or Sweden or something. And the cars were little metal um, you know, chassis with different add-on bits so and they were randomized so you might get a, a rocket launcher or a you know a hood cannon or something or missiles or or um, a spike net that you could drop and you just sort of glued those to your car i just used matchbox cars and uh, used the little bits to glue onto matchbox cars and then I uh, and then i decided i wanted a better scale so i got a bunch of micro machines and attach those to micro machines when they were popular micro machines were cars that weren't much bigger than your thumbnail uh and they actually rolled they were cool but i modded up a whole bunch of those and even made some racks just by holding them under a lighter for a while you know until they until they melted <laughs> uh thunder road was a cool board game that mad max style board game but i'm really excited about gaslands i want to read that because i might return to that uh tabletop car arena or race game and have some fun with it. And I hope you have fun with Necromunda. Yeah, skirmish games are great. They they are, in my opinion, the best iteration of miniatures games. There's something really cool about having giant armies on a table, but it's inherently awkward and unrealistic. You're know, trying to move things in gigantic squared blocks. I played um, Warhammer Fantasy for quite a while, and I played, uh, oh, what was it called? Debellus Antiquatus? And its fantasy variant, which was, I think, Debellus Mult... Mult uh, I'm not going to get it right. Multi... multi uh, I don't know. I don't remember. But it had a fantasy variant. And then that one was 15 millimeter miniatures. And somehow that felt a little better because they were on such small cards that... Uh, and on the battlefield uh, felt a little bigger somehow. And it felt a little bit more organic. There was also a kind of a neat game where they used to put top-down graphics of miniature units on playing cards and you walked around with an army that was a deck of playing cards and you played across the table from each other and I, for the life of me, I can visualize those things but I cannot think of the name of that system. Battle, it was Battle something. Uh, yeah, I can't get it. But that was kind of cool too. So uh, yeah, I've spent my time with these things, uh, finding people that want to play them with you and the time to play them in and the space to play them in, you know, is a trifold challenge. But uh, at least with skirmish games, you have fewer things to collect. You can play in a smaller space and they're usually good two player games and uh, you can usually get them knocked out in two hours. So finding time to play and people to play with is a lot easier. 
Anyway, um, hey, if you and RF, RF had play Necromunda, I want to hear about it. Let's let, uh, do a little podcast and tell me about it because I want to relive the glory days. The Bruise Bones and Blades crew, my Monday night gaming group, got together again this last Monday after a bit of a hiatus. We had some life events and travel going on where we couldn't get together for a few weeks, and my goodness, I missed it. <laughs> we had a great time Monday night. We played a couple hours of our ongoing campaign set in a BX module, but using Dungeon World Rules, run by JJ. And that was great, but JJ didn't push too hard because we really just wanted a little bit of time, I think, to reconnect. We did uh, about a 20-minute recap up front, aside from just catching up on per on a personal level. And then afterwards, we did Roses and Thorns, and then we talked a bit about just various topics. And I brought to the table the question, is it better to, when you're, when you're thinking of an intellectual property like Star Wars or uh, Middle Earth or, you know, a, a set universe, um, Elric of Melnibide, uh, is it better to experience that or learn about that setting from a role-playing game or from the source material, the books or the movies? And JJ had a very salient thing to say. I'm going to misquote him, I'm sure. But he said that um, RPGs are better at capturing the lore, but worse at capturing the flavor. I thought that was a brilliant distinction because role-playing games, for one thing, encompass the entirety of a franchise as best they can. So as an author grows a story over multiple books, whether it's the Dresden Files or John Carter of Mars or Lankmar they add and add to the world with each new successive work. And if you're a reader of that universe or a watcher of that universe in the case of something like Star Wars, well, I guess you'd both be a reader and a watcher in that case, but you grow into the world bit by bit. You, you see the core elements and then added to those core elements, you know, one thing after another until you have an entirety and knowledge of the world. But a role-playing game is often done after uh, a, an intellectual property has been established. And by the way, we're only talking about role-playing games based on intellectual properties right now, though I'm going to transition here in a minute. Uh, and so it tries to encompass everything, and so it does a better job of indexing all that material. Uh, just a really simple idea here is that if you have an alien species show up in the first novel and then a different alien species show up in the second novel, um, those species are described in two different books, whereas in a role-playing game, and in two different sections of those books, whereas in a role-playing game, you know, you'd put all the alien species in one chapter and you'd alphabetize them. So the, the information will be better organized, better indexed, it'll be more complete, uh, but of course it concentrates on the what uh, you know, basic descriptions, stats, that kind of thing, and not on the flavor. If you learn uh, an intellectual property, a universe, through reading or watching, you get an entirely different take on it. You sort of feel your way into it. Um, you explore it. You learn it from the perspective of uh, someone immersed in the reading, as opposed to someone reading an encyclopedia. Uh, and an RPG is a bit more like an encyclopedia. Well, I thought this question really only applied to RPGs that are written uh, based on universes that already exist. But 
I started thinking about different ways that role-playing game books present original settings. And sure enough, I found some examples of role-playing games that present settings in a somewhat encyclopedic fashion. And let's face it, uh, original, well not original D&D, um, first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons portrayed the D&D universe in an encyclopedic way. Even to the point of releasing the monster manual first and that being a bestiary alphabetized of the different monsters of the world. And then the player's handbook, which you know, presented races and then classes and then equipment. You know, everything's very uh, compartmentalized and uh, organized, which is great. I mean, that's a great way to present a very rich setting. And I think what your setting gets to be of a certain size, you kind of have to do it that way. But in contrast to that, let's think about some games that present setting as flavor. So Troika, which I've been reading lately, is a great example of that. It doesn't really tell you anything about the world. You're left to infer a lot about the world, but uh, it gives you little elements of the world in the form of different character builds. So there are a bunch of different, uh, I wouldn't call them pre-generated characters. You roll your stats and then you roll for a character, but when you when you get the character, you get um, race, class, everything all kind of balled into one. And they are unique examples of a potentially generic thing. So you might roll up a parchment witch. Uh, and so let's say your skin is made of paper and maybe spells are written on that paper. And you just have, you know, you've kind of a uh, magical mummy, if you will. Uh, are you unique? Are you the only parchment witch in the universe? Are there lots of parchment witches? Uh, in some cases, the book tells you, and in some cases, it, it does not. Just It doesn't really tell you anything. So, in some cases, it infers that you're singular uh, versus uh, one of many. In most cases, I think they uh, default to the one of many approach. But there's nothing tied down about the world. It's just a lot of ideas that are presented and saying that, okay, all these different ideas exist in the world of Troika, you imagine the rest. And so it, it becomes a setting at the table. It's not really, I mean, it's only a half setting within the rules. Now, another example I was thinking of, and this one is based on an intellectual property, um, the way the One Ring presents the world of Middle Earth versus the way that I presented The Hobbit in There and Back Again. You know, The Hobbit, uh, sorry, excuse me, There and Back Again is a pocket mod game. So the whole thing fits on one side of one piece of paper. Actually, um, that's not true. I, I revised it and I think it's a quad fold or tri fold now. So it's two, -sided of, two sides of one piece of paper. <laughs> but it assumes you know the world. That one, it relies on you knowing the world of The Hobbit or having read The Hobbit, I believe. So maybe that's not a fair example. But in that sense, I've uh, tried to um, evocatively invoke the setting versus trying to restate the setting in a lore fashion. So uh, I think it's still, I think there's still room for people to, and I think there have been people that have done this, design games that evoke an intellectual property rather than uh, spelling that intellectual property out. And I think those designers are telling you, go discover the world through the media, or don't, make it up if you want, um, and use these as the rules, whereas other books are saying, 
let's be convenient and encapsulate the whole world in a book and attach the rules to them. So there you go. It's something interesting to think about when you pick up a role-playing game product to that has a setting in it to ask yourself, which kind of presentation is this? Is this a bullet-listed world, an evocative, you know, suggested world? Is this uh, a sketched-in version of a universe that's been explored elsewhere in media? Or is it an encyclopedic conglomeration or compilation of all the elements of an established world? Finally, I want to suggest that there's such a thing as RPGs as literature rather than RPGs versus literature. Now, these are cases where you have role-playing games that are presenting original setting ideas. And again, they do it in one of two ways. The encyclopedic or lore-driven way is almost a version of frustrated novelist uh, syndrome where somebody writes a role-playing game, it's got a core world imagined within the covers of the, of the basic books, and then to that, they or the, the company they work for add endless splat books that expand the world out and add more and more to it as as they go. I find this personally to be a little problematic, so my language is probably going to be a little judgmental. Other people love it, so there's no right or wrong here, and if I sound too negative, uh, just take that as my opinion versus fact. But I do think that there's a challenge in balancing when you keep adding to the world, how much are you adding that's flavor and how much are you adding that's rules and how much of that does the group at the table have to or need to know in order to play the game. So a world can get quite big and it'd be less comfortable. You know, um, a fictional world can get quite big and it'd be very comfortable. So if you're a fan of The Expanse or Dresden Files, for instance, you like the fact that the world keeps getting bigger because as you read the books, they kind of stay in your mind and uh, you you can assimilate that material and it's personal. But with a role-playing game, it's shared. So as the world gets bigger, it's it's getting bigger with the released books, but it's also getting bigger at the table as players add to the world. And sometimes there can be a dissonance between the direction that players want to take a setting and the direction that the uh, the established books are taking the setting. And somehow the books, in my mind, they're hard to overcome. They always win that argument, if you will, because they're from the designers. They've got the weight of authority or credibility behind them, whereas what's added at the table is uh, unique to you and your group. And so you know, there's just sometimes there's an uncomfortable dissonance there. Uh, many groups just love it. So, like I said, that's just something I've experienced, or maybe an opinion I have. Um, but to look at the other side of it, so those are I'm talking about RPGs as literature that present an original setting, one book at a time, in an encyclopedic fashion. Uh, and the other version of that I think is RPGs that are usually shorter um, and more poetic or lyrical in the way they present a setting. I find that a lot of these games exist in the independently published or small press game world. So whether it's old school games like Veins of the Earth, which is a marvelous imagining of, uh, you know, it's part bestiary, part setting, part just poetry on what it means to be in the dark way down within a cavern system. 
you know, what b lies below, below, right? Uh, so that's a cool, that's a really cool book. And it's a fun read. And it's fun to read as a book, if that makes sense. I just enjoy sort of reading through it without any thought to even playing it, just reading it. And there we go. It's RPG as literature. What else fits into this camp? Well, certainly Troika does. I mentioned that already. Um, Dictionary of Mew is another great example. Polaris is a good example. I could go on and on with examples probably, but I'll stop there and just say I'm curious. I'm curious to hear from you all. Do you prefer, if you were going to discover a setting for the first time that you knew already existed, let's say you had never really watched much Doctor Who, like, like myself. I've only watched a few episodes here and there. And you really wanted to learn about the universe of Doctor Who. Do you think, if you're a Whovian out there, do you think I'd be better served by going to a role-playing game and learning about the world that way first? Or do you think I'd be better served by starting at uh, the beginning of some series of Doctor Who and just working my way through you know, one of the iterations of the Doctor to learn about the world or maybe watching some sort of uh, best episodes list or something like that. So do you think it's better to discover a world through an RPG um, or through its media if it's an established world? And I'm curious whether you prefer encyclopedic uh, indexed, lore-driven presentations of a world, or if you prefer uh, messy, evocative, open-ended, poetic uh, expressions of a world more. I, I suspect that, you know, we'll get a mix, and I hope we get a mix, because it takes all types. And certainly, the market shows that uh, there are purchasers of both of those things. If I were to guess by the market, I would say that the encyclop encyclopedic presentation works better. But I think that's partially because that that's the way the biggest companies do it, and partially because that's the way it started out with um, you know the early iterations of D and D. So it may be a chicken and egg argument there as to that being more popular. But uh, yeah, and cite your own favorite example. Especially, I would like to hear more examples of uh, of worlds that are original worlds that were presented in that evocative way that have stood the test of time, that have uh, you know really gotten legs under them and been around for quite a while. So there you go. That's that's my homework. I haven't given out homework in a while. There's your homework for this week. And that's a wrap. I'm Ray Otis signing off. Just a couple cleanup items. James Shields does amazing clip art. I didn't know that. He was our first caller on this episode. You can find his stuff at DriveThruRPG under J.E. Shields, and I also linked to his Patreon in the show notes. The names of games that I could not remember were Debellus Multitudinous, that's the 15mm miniatures game, and Battleground, that's the playing card-based uh, miniatures game, if you will. I apologize for the dry throat today. I had uh, some swallowing and lip smacking probably in there. Uh, still trying to get over my travels in Mexico, a little dehydrated. Uh, Logan Howard did the amazing intro for me. He releases the Swordbreaker Zine and Podcast, and recently on his Patreon, he put up a cool little trifold pyramid module that he's working on. You can find my stuff at www.rayotus.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for Rust Monsters.